from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. If the problem is that we all humans are unrighteous, we are not able to please God with what we do, then God is the solution that he gives his own righteousness to us through faith in Jesus. That's chapters 1 to 11. Chapter 12 marked a major transition, and you were thinking about it last week if you were here. From chapter 12, Paul is thinking about how all of that stuff, all of that same grace, should affect the life of the follower of Jesus in a number of realms. And so chapter 12 was about presenting your whole life, everything that you are, everything that you do, to Christ, allowing his grace and his love to shape all of your relationships. And chapter 3, verses 8 to 14, will carry on with that. But verses 1 to 7 are something of a tangent. And where Paul wants to ask, how should faith shape our relationship with government? And so I've got three points from this morning. Firstly, God designed government. That government is to govern for good. And that we are to pay our Jews. Firstly, God designed government. And this is about the origin of government. Where does the idea come from? It comes from God. The general sense that we perhaps all have of a sort of dislike for political leaders is borne out in polling data. That's not just a subjective thing. Um, There's a graph here. Of the 22 sort of largest economies, only five have a leader with a positive approval rating. Four out of five of those leaders have led for less than a year. I think that may be the thing that's in common, that the longer you're in, the more you're disliked. In fact, the average approval rating for one of the main global leaders is actually minus 30. The prime minister in this country, as of today, the third in the last calendar year, currently sits at minus 28. Politicians are not much liked, are they? So Paul says here, verse 1, let every person, or it could be translated every soul, be subject to the governing authorities. And the, the, the way this has been translated from the original language into English, it loses some of the nuances here because it could be translated, and maybe this helps us a little with the idea that Paul is getting at, that let every person, that to those who rank above, be placed below. That's what he means by being subject to that Allow those who are in authority to be seen in that way, that they do sit in a place of authority. Now, there's some important points to say already, even just about this first verse. Firstly, government, that is the exercise of power by some on the behalf of all, for the good of all, is a God-given thing. But it does not say what kind of government It doesn't tell you whether it's a republic or a monarchy or anything else or any other flavour of government. It just says governing authorities. Secondly, it asks us to be subject to authorities. And that really is about a mindset, isn't it? Where, like I say, that original translation, that those who rank before, you be underneath. That's a mindset, It's an attitude, that's a posture, isn't it? A posture of compliance and cooperation. 
to government locally and nationally. But thirdly, it's important to say that being a Christian, and in some of the ways that it's summarized in the New Testament era, is that Jesus is Lord, where they're still really kind of uh, scratching around to really find the terms to define what it is they are and what it is they believe. And it's summarized under that sort of junk drawer, heading Jesus is Lord. Believing Jesus is Lord does not mean that nobody else has any form of authority in any realm. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Fourthly, we could say that for Paul here, being a good citizen, so far as it depends on you to do, is a good Christian witness. And it's important maybe to think about the context of the Roman Empire in which Paul is writing this to his original readers. Because it was an expectation that the Roman citizen followed the imperial cult worship. To be Roman was to do so. It was, of course, a very clear way of, and clever way of controlling a population that was very diverse, that was very dispersed, and that was very disparate. And part of that imperial cult was recognising Caesar is Lord, to which Jesus is Lord is a very, very clear counter-punch. There's no way that that doesn't put you somewhat at odds with the state. However, Paul shows here that just because Jesus is Lord doesn't mean the state has no authority over anything. Jesus taught much the same, Mark chapter 12. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He's talking about paying taxes. And on the coin is the picture of Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And at once he disappoints both the zealots because he's not libertarian enough and he's not encouraging an uprising against Rome. And so he disappoints them. But he also would have disappointed Rome because he's not as loyal as they would have wanted him to be either. He kind of disappoints everyone at once. And so fifthly, we could say from this one verse here, church does not rule the world. The assumption here in this statement is that rulers lay outside of the church. Though that may well include Christians within them as well, the church doesn't rule the world. He asks us here, be subject, not obey. That's an interesting difference. That's an important difference. And it might mean that there could be some occasions in which blind compliance would not be a right Christian response. It asks us here, be subject to the governing authorities, not to a particular ruler, but rulers generally. Whether you like the present incumbent or not, perhaps. Why is this so? Why does Paul say this, that we must be subject to the governing authorities? Well, he explains his reasoning. Look there in verse 1. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. If God is sovereign, and he's argued that in chapters 9 to 11, then it must be the case that all authority comes under God's authority, and all authority comes from God's authority. And it tells us that God is just as engaged with secular governance as he is with the church. 
And so the Christian too should be engaged and interested in the secular world, that we might need to engage with politics, that we might very much need to vote carefully, that we might need to think about how we can serve the city and think about how we can support what the city is trying to do. So having given this general principle, be subject to authorities, now we see some of the consequences of not being subject to authorities. Look at verse 2. Whoever resists, whoever rejects, or goes against the authorities, in contrast to being subject, in verse 1, therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, God's arrangement. Paul's previous encouragement here, do not be conformed to this world, chapter 12, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, is about ideas and worldview. It is not about civil unrest. And maybe, just maybe, Paul takes a bit of this tangent just to make that clear. When I said that we conform to the pattern of this world, I don't mean rise up to civil unrest necessarily. I mean have a very different view of the world, have very different values and beliefs. Those who resist will incur judgment. The question there is judgment from who, isn't it? From rule is, yes, that's somewhat inevitable. Common sense tells us that that might be a result. But it seems the implication is it's from God himself too. So, there is an important question, isn't there? When should I obey the government? And can I ever resist the government's orders? Would there ever be a moment that that might be appropriate? Of course, we are always free. We're very fortunate in this particular country. We are always free in a democracy to protest, to strike, to appeal to government against policy. That's always there and available, should you feel that's appropriate and necessary. That's not really a question of morals or faith. I don't think that's just uh, for you to decide. But there may be some times where we can, and even should, resist the government, even though the law does not allow. There are examples in scripture. Think of Moses to Pharaoh being sent by God to appeal that the people are set free from slavery and move out of Egypt to be able to worship God in freedom in their own land. And Moses keeps appealing to Pharaoh and they ultimately leave there without necessarily the blessing of Egypt totally. They pursue them and, and try to bring them back. But Moses considers God's word more important than the approval of Pharaoh and of Egypt. You have examples of the disciples, the apostles in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 5, they've been charged not to speak about the name of Jesus. They've gone and they've spoke the name of Jesus. They're hauled before the authority. They say, we told you. We charge you strictly. Don't talk in this name. And they say, well, yeah. We can't but obey God. You can tell us off. And we'll take those consequences, I suppose, to paraphrase. <laughs> but we couldn't but speak in the name of Jesus. And after beating them and stoning them, they send them off and they say, don't speak in the name of Jesus. A few verses later, 
they speak of the name of Jesus. <laughs> there are some times where, because of gross immorality and tyranny and oppression, you have to resist the government. That's sort of the example with Moses, isn't it? And there's examples with the disciples, where when it comes to a straight shootout between the emperor and God, the disciples put it, we must obey God rather than men. And there's examples in history too. There's even just in this country again, William Tyndale, a man burnt and strangled at the stake for the crime, the high treason of translating the Bible into English. Again, decided, I don't care. Do what you must. There are times where you must resist. Or think of the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, amongst others, decided that things came to a point that he had no other option but to conspire to kill Hitler and came very close. There are sometimes moments of gross tyranny, immorality and oppression, moments where faith is directly questioned and opposed in which we might find we need to resist the state. But ordinarily, be subject to the governing authorities. Paul encourages us that faith should lead us to comply with the authorities unless it conflicts with our faith, unless it reaches the realms of uh, oppression. God designed government. But secondly, government is to govern for good. And this is about the purpose of government. And if you ever caught the uh, comedy Parks and Recreation, one of my favourite characters in all TV is Ron Swanson. He works for the government, but he kind of hates government. Uh, he reflects here in one episode, when I walked in this morning, I saw the flag was at half mast. I thought, all right, another bureaucrat ate it. Or reflecting on his team of employees, he says, Tom doesn't do a lot of work around here. He shows zero initiative. He's not a team player. He's never one to go that extra mile. Tom is exactly what I'm looking for in a government employee. And so this is funny, of course, but there is a sort of sense and perception of politicians that there's maybe a lot more truth in this than we would care to see. In 1944, a Gallup poll found that 35% of people felt that politicians were in it for themselves. On the other hand, 36% believed politicians were largely selfless people. In 2021, they conducted the same poll, same questions. It found that 63% now believed that politicians were in it for themselves. Perhaps more worryingly, only 5% of people believed that politicians have the country's best interests at heart. There is a general sense that politics and that government does not always govern for good but that is the purpose of government for rulers look at verse three there with me are not a terror to good conduct but to bad the word there is is better translated evil the rulers are there to deter evil by wielding judgment the word here is evil not bad because evil exists and god has instituted order in the world partly through government to contain evil but secondly, evil needs to be dealt with by force. Evil does not listen to reason. It needs restraining. It needs constraining by an overwhelming power. One of the problems we face today, one of the reasons that um, you know, authorities are 
treated with scepticism in uh, moments and occasions is that we actually even see the ruling forces at times perpetrating evil. One of the problems with the police at the minute is this perception and the reality that we're aware of events and moments where actually those who are there to constrain and restrain evil are perpetrating evil. We have a number of stories in the news even in recent moments. Tyree Nichols in the United States, Sarah Everard over here, the Hillsborough inquiry. Moments where it's clearly documented that the governing forces have perpetrated evil. And that undermines confidence, doesn't it? But the point here that I want to come to is though change is needed, evidently. The concept, the idea of a law-keeping force, of a government that constrains and restrains evil through exercising authority, isn't the problem. Though clearly it's not immune from evil infiltrating it, is it? So, you Christians, Paul says here, should have no need to fear the governors if your conduct is good, which it should be as part of your faith. Verse 3 continues there, look. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good. It's a very simple argument. God makes a very similar argument there to Cain as he's offered him uh, an offering that was not acceptable and he gets jealous because his brother offers one that is and he's in a mood and he's sulking and God says to him, if you do good, won't it go well for you? Do you want to have no fear of the authorities? Then do what is good. Do what is good, he tells us here, and you'll receive his approval. It's not only a negative, there's a, not just a negative restraining purpose, but a positive one, isn't there? Do what is good and you'll receive his approval. Rulers are there in part to reward and recognize good behavior as well as deter and punish evil behavior. Why? Look at verse 4. Here's his reasoning again. For he, or the authority, is God's servant for your good. And interestingly, the word there, servant, is diakonos, from which we get deacon, from which we get minister. It's the word that Paul will most frequently use for himself and for others who serve in the gospel. He is God's servant for your good. Rulers are to be servants. It's an important point there, isn't it? And rulers are God's servants, so they should submit to him. And thirdly, rulers should serve for the people's good. Now, as I say that, I think probably everybody would want that, right? Who would not want that? Rulers who operate in that way, they're servants. They recognise themselves as servants of God and under him. They recognise that they're serving for other people's good. Everybody wants that. It's incredibly attractive, I think, isn't it? Which makes it all the more sad when that's not what we experience at times. Because there are leaders who don't do good. He's God's servant for your good, but there are leaders who don't do good. We've not long had a prime minister. There's different reasons why leaders will not do good. We've not long had a prime minister, Liz Truss, if you can even remember her, who lasted 44 days and after promising £45 billion of unfunded tax cuts during a recession, uh, inevitably leadership tanked and tanked the economy with it. 
Sometimes leaders don't do good due to incompetence. It's not necessarily immorality. It's just they don't have the requisite skills to do the job. And sometimes, sadly, we face that incompetence of leadership. We currently have a war going on in Ukraine because Vladimir Putin has taken an immoral stance. He just doesn't have the requisite empathy for humanity. There's leaders who don't get to do the good that they would like to because circumstances conspire against them. Remember Barack Obama speaking about many of the plans that he'd had having to be shelved instantly because of the financial crisis. There's a great many things that he would have liked to have done, but if if the circumstances just don't allow it, sometimes you can't do the good that you would have wanted to do. There is an element that sometimes you can be unlucky. There's different reasons for it, but leaders don't always do good. But then secondly, there are leaders who don't serve our good but seem to serve their own. There's a picture here, hopefully, that will come up. This is called the My Little Crony Map. Um, You may possibly have come across it. Um, It's an interactive map that's been done by a PhD researcher in politics and economics called Sophie Hill. It shows all the links between the Conservative Party, their friends' businesses, and their own families, and the millions and millions of pounds that they made during covid on PPE contracts. And there's many more examples, of course, we could turn to, but we know there are leaders sometimes who don't serve our good, but their own. But if you do wrong, look at verse four there with me, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Rulers have the ability, they have the authority, they have the right to punish wrong, for, this is why now, he's the servant of God, again, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God provides justice through authorities. Pending God's final judgment at Jesus' return, authorities are to mete out the judgment of God on the wrongdoer, which is right. One of the God-given purposes for government is the good of the people whom God has given them to serve. God designed government Government is to govern for good. And then lastly, we're to pay our dues. And this is about the Christian's relationship and response to government. Therefore, Paul says in verse 5, and now he's summarizing this little section, these little seven verses together, he's pulling it together. And he's repeating again that encouragement from verse 1. One must be in subjection. Paul's reasoning has been so far, must be in subjection to the authorities to avoid God's judgment and to gain their approval, and to avoid the state's judgment and gain their approval. And now he adds a new element. He says, not only to avoid God's wrath, look at verse 5, but also for the sake of conscience. So it's not just about avoiding punishment, but desire to do right. See, desire to avoid adverse consequences is actually quite an effective deterrent to bad behavior to a point the desire not to end up at nine wells is a really good deterrent from allowing my children to have bottomless slush puppies and if ever you were sort of looking for an example of the existence of total depravity and some people just waking up and choosing violence in the world that is it 
adults selling bottomless slush puppies to children. But that desire to avoid the adverse consequences is quite a good motivator, it's quite a good deterrent. The desire not to lose access to their devices is a powerful deterrent to my boys uh, from not fighting, sometimes. Or thirdly, the desire not to anger my wife is a very powerful deterrent from me being too lazy to put the bins out. Wanting to avoid negative consequences is a decent motivator, to a point, to not do things that are bad. But what is better is actually to not want to do them. Yet that's much harder, isn't it? And that takes much longer to change. But one of the glorious, the wonderful things the Holy Spirit does is to reawaken and to renew our consciences in line with God's will and purposes. So, Paul will say here, obey rulers to avoid punishment and to gain approval, but also, secondly, in order to live in alignment and in step with God. There's a subtle difference, isn't there, between not doing something because it's not expedient or not beneficial for me and not doing something because I know it's not right before God. What's right before God should be more important than what's beneficial or expedient for me. And that changes how we view certain things. So that Jesus, Matthew 5, in his famous teaching on the Mount, will say that even to look with lust is the same as to commit adultery. To harbour hate in your heart is the same thing, really, as to murder. It's far better to not want to do it in the first place. Be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In verse 6, he continues, For the same reason you also pay taxes for the authorities and ministers of God attending to this very thing. The interesting thing is that this issue of taxes was probably one of the biggest reasons people might be tempted to resist the authorities. Rome had instituted huge taxes across Europe in order to keep various territories subservient and to keep funding itself. And it was seen really as the primary symbol of government control and loss of liberty for people. And so there was a temptation not to pay that tax, aside from just the very obvious thing of keeping hold of that money, and what you could do with it. Pay to all, verse 7, he says, what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. And now Paul moves way beyond taxes to respect, to honour as well. And Paul is following Jesus' own teaching, mentioned it earlier on, that It's not just about taxes, but so much more. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Pay taxes to whom they're owed. Pay revenue, or that is indirect taxes, to whom they're owed. Respect to whom is owed, and honour to whom is owed. You should pay it, even if you don't agree with it. And even if you don't agree with how it's going to be spent, or not spent, pay it. But it's about more than just money, isn't it? Pay respect to whom respect is owed and honour to whom honour is owed. It's not to be a begrudging submission, but a heartfelt one. The authorities don't have to earn your respect. They don't have to earn your honour. You should offer it because of the position they occupy. Now that is where it gets really, really difficult, isn't it? Because there are some leaders 
that make that hard to do. But because of the role that they occupy, there is a base level of respect and honour required, hard though that can be at times. The Christian is to live so far as we can, so far as it depends on us, paying respect to whom it's owed, recognising the authorities, paying our dues to those authorities God has given. So government is God-given. Government should govern for people's good. The Christian should cooperate with government. But we know that no earthly government, even one with Christians in it, will ever get everything right. So don't put your hope in government. Don't condition your respect on the personalities. And spare your resistance for the issues that matter. We started by thinking about why heroes are appealing in movies, because governments so often just seem to be so bad. Depressingly, Harvey Dent, who becomes Two-Face in the Batman film, summarises, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. But he was wrong. Because one man died a hero. One man remains a hero. And one man will return a hero again too. Revelation 21, we read some verses from there at the beginning of the service and we'll close in a few moments with these here. Just a couple of chapters on. Speaks of the return of Jesus and the renewal of the earth at the end of time. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I'll give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I'll bless, I'll be his God, sorry, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Every earthly ruler takes what is not their own. Jesus returns to take all that his father had promised to him. Every earthly ruler is limited. They only ever have so much power. Jesus brings a new city and a redemption to the whole earth. Every earthly ruler is sinful. Every earthly ruler will fail us eventually. Jesus is only and always good, right, and perfect. 
Every earthly ruler is always conflicted. They'll never always have our good in mind. Jesus, though, will wipe away every tear, fix every hurt. Every earthly ruler is mortal. They'll not last forever. But Jesus will bring an eternal kingdom of prosperity, peace, and love. The kingdom he brings is the one still imprinted in our hearts. It's the one deep within our soul. It's the one we all long for and look for. Where every wrong is righted, where every wound is bound, where every heart is mended. But its inheritance is also for his people. There was a sting in the end of those verses, wasn't it? That it's for those who are his. And so our hope is, as we thought right at the beginning, that though nothing we can do can earn that, can guarantee that spot, the hope is, chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That God would not only go to such lengths to redeem and to renew and to restore his kingdom. The expense of his own son. But that he would give the very thing that would achieve it. That he would grant us his righteousness in our place. For believing that there is one who is only and always and ever will do what is good, what is right, what is perfect for each of us. The hope for us as we think about government in our own day is the one to come in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.